In his excellent book titled Knowing God, Dr. J.I. Packer opens chapter 1 with these words. On January 7, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Chapel Southwark opened his morning sermon as follows. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity, and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated." I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning, end quote. These words, spoken over a century ago by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, at the time, incredibly, only 20 years old. Dr. A.W. Tozer has written many books along this theme, the most popular of which is probably his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It is a book that, in my opinion, every Christian should read more than once in his life. I surveyed the book and pulled out some excerpts that sum up the thrust, the theme of the book. Some of these quotes are somewhat extensive, so really work to not let your mind wander really wrestle with these thoughts and enter into what he says here. 
He says, quote, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most crucial fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when the concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Here is the final paragraph. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise, end quote. Those are penetrating words because they are true. The greatest subject that can engage the mind of mortal man is the subject of God himself. That is true for at least two reasons. Number one, it is determinative for life after death. By way of introduction, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. The fourth Gospel record, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And this records, of course, our Lord's great high priestly prayer on the night before His death. 
The prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, or the way he taught them to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, is often called the Lord's Prayer. But this is really the Lord's Prayer. That was the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. And as he was praying to the Father, look at what he said in verse 3. He says to the Father, and this is eternal life. Now that ought to get our attention. Anytime the Lord introduces something by saying this is eternal life, that should get our attention. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here Jesus affirms that eternal life results from knowing God. And nothing is more important than that. Jesus said in Matthew 16, What profit is it to a man if he gains the world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, nothing even comes close to comparing with the value of eternal life, and eternal life results from knowing God. In fact, to say it another way, just to turn the coin over the other way, those who don't know God will be eternally judged. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Turn to the right, past Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians to 1st and 2nd. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, speaking of the Lord Jesus, Paul wrote these words, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how those are parallel. Obeying the gospel of Christ is knowing God. Knowing God means you obey the gospel of Christ. And those who do not know God, verse 8 says, will be eternally damned. So the first reason why the subject of God is the greatest subject that can engage the mind of mortal man is because the subject of God or knowing God is determinative for life after death. The second reason why the subject of God is the greatest subject that can engage the mind of mortal man is because thinking right about God is foundational to right living. Right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. Now, I'm not reducing the Christian life down to thinking. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying the Christian life is just merely a thinking issue. But if you have wrong thoughts of God, wrong views of God, wrong perspectives of God, it's difficult to live the Christian life well. Right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. What you really believe about God fleshes out in the way you live, not what you say you believe, but what you really believe. Through the years as a pastor, I have seen that so many of the problems people have in their lives stem from a wrong view of God. It goes right back to that. I mean, it just demonstrates so clearly the the connection between theology and life. For example, if you view God as unloving, some people do, you will suffer insecurity. If you view God as unforgiving, you will suffer overwhelming guilt. If you view God as weak or out of touch with life, you're going to suffer from fear thinking, what's going to happen? If you view God as lenient, you know, he doesn't really care what you do, you'll suffer the consequences of sinful choices. If you view God as unrighteous, 
and sadly some people do, you will suffer from resentment and bitterness. I remember on one occasion just giving a list like that and after the message, I think it was the next day, a lady contacted me. She said, as you went down through that list, I used to view God in every one of those ways and you're exactly right. I suffered from every one of those things until God by his grace helped me get to know him and all of those things were washed away from my life. You see, your knowledge of God is the key to your life. Go back into Hebrew Scripture to Jeremiah chapter 9 and look at this familiar passage. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us of what we all know all too well. Smart people glory in their intelligence often. Strong people glory in their strength. Rich people glory in their money. But true fulfillment, true satisfaction, true contentment in life comes only from knowing God. The better you know God, the more accurately you know God, the better off you will be because right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. And what an insult it is for God if we think we already know Him. Good enough. We're good enough. You know, it's good enough. We know Him well enough. As God's people, we are called to a lifelong preoccupation with God. And even though we may spend our lives getting to know God, we still won't be able to know all there is about Him. In fact, God hasn't even revealed everything there is to know about Himself. Keep going back to the left to Deuteronomy 29, the fifth book of the Bible, the last book of the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. This is a fascinating statement. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, God has chosen to keep some things to himself. The secret things belong to the Lord. He hasn't told us everything, but what he has revealed is for us to know so we can know him and we can please him and honor him and live for him. If God did reveal all of himself to us, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it all anyway. He is an infinite being and we are finite beings. Therefore, if God told us everything about himself, it would literally, literally blow our minds. It would be like trying to put a thousand volts of electricity into a 60-watt light bulb. You just can't take it. But what God has revealed about himself will take us more than a lifetime to assimilate. Now, before we jump right into the biblical data of who is God, what is God, how do we know God, I want to start at the very beginning by discussing evidence for the existence of God. As you very well know, there are people in our world, people in our society, who flatly deny that there is a God. They say categorically, there is no God. Such people are called atheists. Sigmund Freud 
The the father of modern uh, psychoanalysis taught that man created God. In his book, The Future of an Illusion, Freud said that man so desperately needs security and has such deep-seated fears from living in a threatening world in which he has very little control over his circumstances that he invented God, developing the idea of a protective father to help him out when he needed something. So that's Freud's view, and it's a very popular one. Man created this view of God that we find in the Bible just as sort of a stopgap because of all of our fears. Does the evidence support Freud's view? Not at all. In fact, if you study history and cultural anthropology, you will find that man actually does one of two things. He either creates a concept of God that is not at all like the Bible, or he tries to philosophically, pragmatically eliminate God. Why does he do that? Because he wants to eliminate the concept of a holy, righteous God who will ultimately carry out judgment on sinfulness. Most people who are atheists are atheists because it is the most expedient way to deal with their guilt or to deal with the thought that they will stand before God someday. And so they just flatly deny that there is a God. But when you stop to really think about it, it's the height of presumption, the height of arrogance to call yourself an atheist. To say that there is no God would mean that you, have, you would have to have perfect and complete knowledge of everything. Right? I mean, think about it. If you're going to state categorically there is no God, that means that you have to know everything because if you don't know everything, then in that part of that area of knowledge that you don't know, there could be the existence of God. So to be an atheist, you have to say you have perfect and complete knowledge of everything. You know everything, and and because you know everything, there is no God. And secondly, you would have to say that you have been everywhere in the universe to support your claim. You have been everywhere in the universe, and there is no God anywhere. Well, nobody can make that claim. No human being in his right mind can say he knows everything And therefore, there's no room, there's no category for God. And he has been everywhere in the universe, searched it out. There's no place he hasn't been, and there is no God. That's why Psalm 14.1 says, and also it's repeated later in the psalm book, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's foolish. I've told you in the past the true story about the atheist who continually went to church. He was an atheist, but he went to church specifically to sit there and hassle the pastor and make fun of him during the sermon to shake him up. He would sit there, and as the pastor would preach, he would make all these gestures and out loud sighs and laughs and all that, just trying to you know, get him off, off kilter there. And, and that was his whole goal in going to church. Well, one Sunday morning, he came up with another idea, and he, he handed a note to one of the ushers He signaled one of the ushers, and he asked the usher to deliver it to the pastor just before the sermon, just as he was getting up there. So the usher didn't know what it was. He took the note, handed it to the pastor, and the pastor got up to speak, and he opened the the note, and he saw one word, fool. He proceeded to preach his sermon, and as he began, he said, ladies and gentlemen, an amazing thing has just happened to me. I have received many letters in the past without any signature. 
but I was just handed a note from a man who signed his name without writing any message. That's quick thinking. But that's exactly what God's assessment is of those who say there is no God. Some atheists realize the foolishness of saying there is no God, so they try to soften their view by calling themselves agnostics. Agnostics. In other words, well, I won't, I won't categorically state there is no God, but we don't really know. We can't know if there's a God, so don't even worry about it. Can't know for sure. But really, that isn't any better than calling yourself an atheist because the Latin word for agnostic is ignoramus. I don't think anybody wants to knowingly call himself an ignoramus. It's foolish to not believe in God in light of all the evidence there is. Let me give you some of the evidence. First of all, studies in cultural anthropology, and that's sort of what I minored in in college when I was taking liberal arts, just wanted, was curious about what was in that field. And studies in cultural anthropology have established the fact that there is an awareness of the existence of a divine being in all peoples. All peoples. Where does this intuitive knowledge come from? John 1 says it's instilled in man. Romans 1 and 2 say it is instilled in man. In addition to the internal evidence for the existence of God, there is a pile of external evidence. Let me mention some of the deductive arguments for the existence of God. And granted, as I'll say at the end of these, you're not going to talk anyone into believing in God. If, if they don't want to believe in God, if they don't want to believe the facts, it doesn't matter how much evidence you give. But the deductive arguments are interesting just because it shows how much people have to fight against in their mind not to believe in God. How, how much effort they have to put forth to try to deny that there is a God. First of all, there's the cosmological argument. The Greek word cosmos means world. So the key thought in this argument is cause and effect. Everything begun must have had an adequate cause. Hebrews 3, 4 says it plainly when it says, for every house is built by some man. That ought to be patently obvious. Nobody times nothing can't equal everything. There has to be a cause and effect relationship. The cause of limitless space must be infinite. The cause of endless time must be eternal. The cause of perpetual motion must be powerful. The cause of complexity must be omniscient. The cause of consciousness must be personal. The cause of feeling must be emotional. The cause of will must be volitional. The cause of ethical values must be moral. The cause of religious values must be spiritual. The cause of beauty must be aesthetic. The cause of righteousness must be holy. The cause of justice must be just. The cause of loving must be loving. The cause of life must be living. Again, I say nobody times nothing cannot equal everything. A second argument for the existence of God is called the teleological argument. This is an extension of the previous argument. The Greek word teleos means perfection, result, end, or finish. So the key thought of this argument is design. Order in a system implies an intelligent originating cause, and since there is order in the universe, since our universe has order and arrangement, it must have had an intelligent outside cause. I mean, think about it. If you see a piano, you don't assume 
that an elephant ran into a tree in which a guy was playing the harp and therefore caused the whole thing to accidentally fall together. Ivory, wood, and strings. It's ridiculous. Design implies a designer. As you, were, as you leave here, as you leave after the service, if you go outside and you're walking to your car and you see there on the sidewalk or, or in the parking lot, you see a little Lego house, you know, with the little blue and white and red, red Legos, what would you assume? I mean, everyone, everyone, anyone in his right mind would say some little kid was playing with a box of Legos here and built a little house. No one in his right mind would say, oh, someone was driving by here and threw a box of Legos out the window and it landed like that. Nobody would believe that unless you want to try to come up with that theory. So the theory of evolution is like someone saying to you, I want to show you my new house. It's great. One day we had a pile of lumber delivered on the lot. We lit a stick of dynamite under it and it all landed just right. The den is right where we planned it. Fireplace and all. The bedrooms are all upstairs. The plumbing for the bathroom is perfect. I mean, who would believe such a story? You see, when you talk about it that way, it shows the utter foolishness, the ridiculousness of what is taught in our society today. How can people really... Smart, intelligent people believe in the theory of evolution that it's all just chance and that there was no design here. Who would believe such a story? I tell you, who? Only those who would choose to believe. I once had a college professor in the area of biology. As he was teaching us in, in, in the university, he said that if you were to take all the pieces of an elaborate pocket watch or stopwatch, whatever. If you were to take all the pieces uh, of an elaborate watch and place them all in a brown paper bag, this is his exact illustration, you place all the pieces in a brown paper bag and shake them, eventually it would become a watch. What do you say to that? I mean, that is willful. You, you have to convince yourself to believe something like that. A third argument for the existence of God is the ontological argument. The Greek word ontos means being, so the key thought of this argument is idea. This argument and the next one are related to the internal evidence I mentioned a moment ago. Man has an intuitive idea of an absolutely perfect being. Man cannot have an intuitive idea about a non-reality. Therefore, an absolutely perfect being must exist. A fourth argument for the existence of God is called the moral argument. The key thought here is conscience. This one comes right out of Romans 2. Man has an inborn sense of right and wrong. Now, the conscience isn't always perfect, and it needs to be trained, but man has an inborn sense of right and wrong. This infers the existence of a just and supreme lawgiver because this sense of right is not self-obtained, and fear judgment for violating one's conscience is not self-imposed. It's just there. A fifth argument for the existence of God is the aesthetical argument. Since there is beauty and truth in this world, somewhere in the universe, there must be a standard on which truth and beauty are based. A sixth argument for the existence of God is called the volitional argument. Because man has volition or the ability to express his individual will, there must be an infinite will somewhere, and the world exists as an expression of that will. 
Those are just some of the deductive arguments for the existence of God. The the evidence is there for those who would be intellectually honest, but those who won't believe, as I said earlier, those who willfully choose not to believe won't believe regardless of the evidence. Therefore, the Bible simply starts by assuming the existence of God. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Bible starts by assuming the existence of God because it is utterly foolish to say there is no God in light of all the evidence. So it's almost as if the Bible says, why, why, even, why do we have to even fight this? There's no reason to fight it. It's so patently obvious that there is a God. We'll just start the Bible with, in the beginning, God. But just to say you believe in God isn't enough either. There are a lot of people who say they believe in God, but of course when you talk to them, their concept of God is way out there. It doesn't even remotely resemble the true God, the God of Scripture. So who is God? What is God? What is God like? Those those are some of the questions we want to answer in this series, and those three questions will actually outline this brief series in our weeks to come. Who is God? What is God? What is God like? So in this first message, we want to begin probing that first question, who is God? Who is he? To answer that question, we need only turn to Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 17. So turn over with me to Acts 17. When Paul, speaking to the philosophers at Athens, sought to answer this question. They knew there was a God. There was one they didn't really know. They had this inscription, this altar with an inscription to the unknown God. There's a God out there that we don't really know. Who is he? So Paul basically steps forward to say, I'll tell you who he is. You want to know who this God is? You've got all these other gods. They aren't the true God. Let me tell you who the true God is. And here was basically Paul's answer to the question, who is God? And it is a fabulous, fabulous sermon. Notice verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious, for as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. And here Paul is saying, listen, you just want to cover all the bases, so you try to worship all these gods, and even this one, but you don't know him, so let me tell you who he is. Him I proclaim to you. And notice, this is so insightful to see how Paul's mind worked and where he began, and how he sought to address this issue. Notice this this brilliant presentation. He begins this way, verse 24. God who made the world and everything in it. That's where Paul began. Creation. He didn't hesitate to begin with creation. That's the starting point of it all. Who is God? He is the creator of this world and everything in it. Beloved, in our day, we don't have to back away from that. Scripture could not be any clearer. God is the creator of this world and everything in it. 
Psalm 146 verses 5 and 6 say, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. That verse says, Happy is the one who, whose hope is in the Lord God and sees him as creator. Let me just expand that further. If God didn't create this world, what hope do you have? If it's really random, what hope do you have? If God's not the originator, the beginner, the starter of all of this, then this is some huge, huge cosmic machine, and you and I may just get, you know, eventually get caught in the wheels of it and grind, and then we would be ground to pieces. No, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Isaiah 40, verses 12 and 28 say, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and measured out heaven with a span and measured the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. The idea is there's no way to plumb the depths of his understanding. Because his understanding is so vast that he could create everything around us and make it work. I mean, think about that. I mean, we, we have trouble sometimes getting the little present for our kids and putting it together and making it work. But God created all of this and he makes it work. It all works. You, you've studied this kind of stuff and in science about how close we are to the sun and how far. If we're one degree closer, we'd all burn up. One degree farther away, you know, we'd all freeze to death. The angulation of the earth's axis and the rotation, all that stuff. It's like God makes all of this work perfectly. Isaiah 44, 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens by myself, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. These statements from Isaiah show how important it is to God that we understand he's the creator. Because when he identifies himself, his own description of himself often comes back to creation. Isaiah 45 Verses 12 and 18 say, I, God, have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, God himself who formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other God. He formed this earth to be inhabited. The earth is perfect for us to live on. You've studied astronomy. You want to go try to live on Mars? You want to try to live on some other planet? God has created this earth perfectly for it to be inhabited, for us to be able to live on it. Animals, plants. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heaven and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. If God could pull this off, create this universe, and all that we learn 
Every year we learn more things about this creation, whether it's on a micro level or a macro level, studying the expanse of the universe, or studying cells and DNA and RNA. It doesn't matter how far you go inward or how far you go outward. It's, it's more of a reflection of what this verse says, your great power. So there's nothing too hard for you. If you can pull this off on a micro level, a macro level, what's too hard for God? So this is the starting point of of it all. God is the creator of the universe and everything in it. But there's more as Paul answers the question, who is God? First point, starting point, creator. Second, God is king and Lord. He goes on in verse 24 to say this, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So Paul says here, God not only made the earth, he owns it, he rules it, he controls it, and that is why we often, in our vocabulary as Christians, use the word sovereign. That's what it means. God is sovereign. He's over it all. He made it, yes. He owns it, he rules it, he's involved in it. He is the sovereign one. He is king and lord. Third, God is life giver. Verse 25, he says, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God is the source of everything. He's the life giver. Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. God is the life giver. He's the source of everything. That's why James 1.17 says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is the source of everything. Everything. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians on one occasion, I hope you've meditated on this little phrase, what do you have that you did not receive? You ever meditated on that one? What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Beloved, everything you and I have, we received. You say, oh, no, no. I worked hard for what I have. I applied myself. Well, who gave you the strength to work hard for that? Who gave you the mind to work hard for that? Everything you have, everything I have, we received. I'm not saying that you haven't worked hard or you haven't applied yourself, but if God didn't give you the mind he gave you, if God didn't give you the health he gave you, you wouldn't have anything. If God made you totally weak, totally incapacitated mentally, you wouldn't have anything. So anything you have, even though you may think that you worked for it and earned it, it's a gift. What do you have you did not receive? God is the source of everything. Fourthly, Paul says, God is governor. Verse 26 He says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. In other words, what Paul is saying here is God is controlling history. History is his story. God is controlling history. He is controlling the destiny of men. He's controlling the destiny of nations. And he is moving it to its culmination in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is governor. And fifthly, God is revealer. Verse 27, Paul says, So that, here's the purpose 
so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, and Paul's wording is very careful here, he's not saying we're all children of God, you know, fatherhood of God, brotherhood of all mankind. No, Paul clearly taught God is only the father of those who are in Christ. But he said in here, there's a sense in which we're all the offspring of God in the sense that we're all from him in the sense that he is our creator. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. So here Paul says, God is all of those previous things that I just said, creator and governor and controller and sovereign one, Lord and king. God is all of those things and he does all that he does so that he might reveal himself to be who he really is. God's involvement in this world is so that men might seek him, verse 27 says. And if men and women really want to seek him to know what he requires, then verse 30 answers that. Verse 30, Paul says, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So who is God? He is creator, he's king, he's lord, he's life giver, giver, he's governor, he's revealer, and he has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and his son died a substitutionary death for sin, and now God is commanding all people everywhere to repent and to receive his gracious gift of eternal life. And with that, we're right back to where we started with John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So that's the starting point. If we really want to know God, we start by recognizing him for who he is and what he's called upon us to do, namely verse 30, to repent and turn to him and to come to know him and to know his son to have eternal life. And I hope and pray that's true of every person who is gathered here. Let's bow together as we close. Just quickly as we close, I ask you the question, do you know God? And I'm not merely asking, do you know about him or know of him? Do you really know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Not know about him, not know of him. Most people in our society at least know of him. Do you know him? Do you really know him? This is eternal life, Jesus said to the Father, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? And Father, certainly there is no more important question for anyone, anyone of, uh, any person of mankind than the question of knowing you, knowing your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, thank you that you grant us that we can know you. You, the one who is infinite, we who are finite, and yet you allow us to know you. Not merely know about you, but to really know you. 
And Father, I pray just for anyone, anyone hearing these words who doesn't know you, who doesn't know your son, Jesus Christ, draw that man, draw that woman, draw that young person into a genuine relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.